Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and this is the fourth in a series looking at the impact of the COVID-19 crisis and asking how we can build back better. This podcast is taken from a public webinar that WRI held on the critical role of public transport, bringing in issues such as employment, revenue and equity. The panellists that you'll hear are Adriana Lobo, Beth Osborne and Marusha Kardama. But first, Sergio Avaleda of WRI's Ross Centre for Cities. The main characteristic of public transport is the efficiency in moving a large number of people. So when we observing to start this crisis, public transportation was one of the first sectors that was affected by the pandemic. And it, was, it is very impressive because at the same time that you need to reduce the offer of public transport to contribute to reduce social interaction, we should maintain the level of service because we need to maintain the essential services for citizens. We need to maintain healthcare, food, and other essential services for cities. By serving essential workers, public transport has become not a service for riders, but for everyone in cities. During this crisis, we are predicting three different stages. One, this stage that we are observing the majority of countries in the world when authorities decide to maintain social distance between people. The second step, and we hope it will be soon, will be the transition period. And the third one, we are recommending to design a new configuration of public transport in cities. Just right now, we are observing, as I mentioned, reducing suspended services. Porto Alegre, the city, a city in the south of Brazil, are operating with 25% of the demand, but they are facing 70% of the costs. Public transportation operates with a high fixed costs. And with this gap, we are observing some operators are going on the way to bankruptcy. If we collapse the public transportation operators, we will increase the private vehicle use and the informal operators. Some cities around the world spent a lot of efforts to formalize and organize their public transports. If we lose this capacity and this structure, we will observe an informal transport that is not so good, that's not observing rules, standards, and timetables, and other issues. So economic stimulus plans must be considered public transportation, urban mobility as a strategic and essential services. So they should send money to keep and maintain the bus operators and the public transportation structure with its capacity to restart when we restart the economic activities. And to the future, this crisis can open important opportunities to reshape public transportation. We need to work to find new revenue sources. We need to work to improve high quality buses and the transit infrastructure. We need to be more efficient. It's a great opportunity to design and implant bus corridors or better because it's cheaper and quicker to implant exclusive lanes for buses, modernize and electrify bus fleets. And we need to redesign our governance to coordinate, to reduce costs, increase efficiency and increase quality to attract more users. That was Sergio Avieda. Next, Adriana Lobo of WRI Mexico. I think the transport sector in general has been one of the most affected sectors in the whole world. 
not only public transport, but all sectors. I would say that the first very positive experiences we are seeing very early days. Bogota, for example, has opened a lot of new spaces for bikes in the city. Jalisco, Guadalajara here in Mexico is really looking for the same. So I think bikes will be a great solution. We have to take advantage of the space before cars get back. And then to talk about transit, it's a sector that gives job in Mexico to a hundred, uh, over 160,000 people. So we have to take care of these jobs too. But I think one of the most interesting is exploring financial solutions that might help families directly with prepaid cards and that we can smoothen the way we deliver the money back to the, to the bus owners by paying some of the money now and then smoothening. This can also create some effect that it doubles down the impact of the money that's delivered by the government by helping the families directly, but also the bus owners and bus drivers. Adriana Lobo. Next up, Beth Osborne of Transportation for America. We've released two documents, in fact. One is recommendations for uh, how we should handle economic stimulus. But I think I'm going to focus a little bit more on a document that we released that is focused on lessons learned from the last Recovery Act. And there are a lot of things we saw in its implementation that we should be learning from right now. It also happens to support the sort of investments that many of us would like to see that are more green, that are more equitable. So one of the things we discovered is because funding was put out in big lumps with a lot of discretion to states and localities, but mostly states, to spend the money as they would like, it was not directed to the projects that created the most jobs quickly. So we know transit creates more jobs, uh, both short-term and long-term, than highways. And we know that highway and roadway state of repair projects create more jobs than highway expansions or new highways. If you build new highways or roadways or you expand them, you have to purchase a lot of -of right-of-way. And while there will be a handful of lawyers that will be very grateful for the work, that's really not the sort of economic stimulus that most of us are seeking. We want to put people to work in construction and in the industries that support the actual building of projects. We need not use economic stimulus as an excuse to keep building things the way we have for the last 70 years with all of its flaws. Its flaws in terms of poor safety outcomes, particularly those who are not in an automobile. It's inequitable outcomes because if you cannot afford one automobile, one reliable automobile per person over 16 years of age in your household, you really can't do what you need to do in our society. And in terms of being cleaner, when even short trips require you to burn gasoline, there's really no way to support green outcomes and protect the climate. And what's also interesting is whereas we've always paid for our program with a user fee, a gas tax, this basically shows our major interest groups throwing their hands up and saying, forget it, we're just going to pay for our program with general funds and debt. If there's no user fee, the old rules about how all the money should go to highways and highway expansion is gone. Why shouldn't at least as much money go to transit, if not more? What's super exciting is in the United States, I think we've all learned why transit is an essential public utility, which is very new for the United States. Through the shutdown, we have realized, we have been reminded that 36% of those who use public transportation are essential workers. And while many of us may not be required to take transit to get to the grocery or to get to the hospital, it doesn't do us any good to get to those places if they're not running. If you get to the hospital because you drove yourself there and your nurse isn't there, 
you haven't gotten anything. So I think we've all learned that we're all transit dependent now. And that is an opening that we have never seen in the United States to really push a different type of recovery. That was Beth Osborne. The next panellist is Marusha Kardama of SlowCat, the Partnership for Sustainable Low Carbon Transport. Let's just start thinking about people because people and ambition should go hand in hand. And I think that we are going through a moment in which we have before COVID and after COVID. is another new VC and AC. In VC times before COVID, we already had incredible movements in the street, led by the younger generations, many times triggered by uh, measures related to transport and really the fight for climate action and the fight for action against inequality was already taken to the streets. There was more conversation in households about buying, for instance, an electric vehicle. There was much more attention to sustainable low carbon transport matters in the international arena. And now we are AC after COVID. As people, perhaps we have understood a bit better the importance of science. Perhaps I want to think that we have seen that behavioral change can happen really fast. Perhaps we have realized about the importance of public services, about common goods. And perhaps this is an opportunity for public transit and mobility to be understood as that common good, as that public service that we need to protect. If I move now to governments, I would like to reflect a bit upon the fact that governments operate at the national level and they also operate at the multilateral level, in multilateral instances. Obviously, the centrality of public policy to protect the common goods and to safeguard us from what I would call the common baths, I think is becoming very, very apparent in this crisis. Perhaps I'm gonna have a word about the the bailouts, the industry liquidity schemes. If we're going to bail out aviation, we should also be bailing out public transport. And we should also be taking all transport modes on a track, a progressive track, of course, but a track uh, that it's aligned with a low carbon economy, with a zero carbon economy, I would even say. It's interesting to see that, for instance, when we talk about the bailouts, there is a country like Denmark who has recently said they were not bailout companies which would be headquartered in tax havens. So we could think about similar things for transport. I am not saying that we can transpose this to the transport sector, but it opens food for thought. You know, what is it that these bailout schemes should or should not be doing in a phased out approach? And governments in the context of those multilateral entities with, uh, to which they belong. Let's talk here about the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement. This year is not a year like any other in that context. In 2020, countries are required to submit two sets of documents, two policy frameworks. One of them is the nationally determined contributions, is the short-term perspective of the efforts that countries are going to be doing on mitigating emissions and on adapting to climate change. The ambition on transport needs to be dramatically increased from the first generation of NDCs, nationally determined contributions, that were submitted back in 2015. But this year, countries must also submit the longer-term vision, what is called the long-term climate action strategies. And these are clearly an opportunity for us to support countries to move from the exacerbated focus on improved strategies and really tackle the structural changes needed in cities and in countries to go into avoid and shift strategies deeper than what they do through the nationally determined contributions. Marusha Kardama. Now, a few questions asked by WRI's Ben Weller. I'm going to shift now to the Q&A. We're getting a lot of questions. Uh, Maybe I'll start with you, Adriana, on how cities might permanently start investing in these alternative modes of transport. When you look at Bogota, they have been investing in these modes for a long time. It seems like Mexico City is also taking care very much, it's like in the periphery areas, 
And I think the opportunity is that when you, you open temporary spaces, people who were using other modes can feel safe. Safety is one of the issues that have deterred people for the longest on using bikes. And if you open more safe space and people have the chance to experiment, what I have seen is that especially younger people, when they try bikes, when they use bikes, they never want to get back if they feel safe. The real important thing is to win the spaces for buses and for bikes in a stage before cars start to get back because otherwise that will be harder. I will add that, you know, Oakland, California has uh, recently closed uh, 110, 115 kilometers of roadway, some of which may not be reopened to cars in order to create more space for people to be outside active and social, socially distanced. There's a lot of evidence that shows that people who are active have stronger immune systems, that people that get fresh air and try to stay active are less likely to have the pneumonia if they get COVID. So these are really important public health issues. It's not just Oakland, we're seeing Denver, Minneapolis, smaller places like Louisville, Kentucky, and Burlington, Vermont, converting as many as a fourth of their roadways more towards people as opposed to cars. So I think that is something that uh, allows us to experiment and hopefully not go back to where we were uh, with a long economic downturn. I don't think we will have the rebound in, in car usage to where we were right before. And then on transit, I do think one of the things that, at least here in the United States, we have to consider, and maybe other places as well, in the United States, the notion has been if people aren't stuffed into a bus like a group of sardines, that the bus is not worthwhile. And we need to move away from that. We're going to have to run more buses with more space. Those of us with choice may be able to turn to other options, but a huge portion of our populations do not have that choice, and we have no choice but to make it a safe one. In Latin America, for example, is that the crowdedness of the bus is part of the financial system. In Mexico and in other places, there is basically no subsidy from the state. And I think this has to be absolutely rethought because if we need more buses under less demand, it's of course that the whole economy of the sector is going to change. We cannot increase tariffs because people really need bus to be cheap now. And by the other side, we have a decrease in income. So this new equation you definitely need to be rethought. Suju, I'm going to turn to you. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions sort of on what are we going to do about all the increased vehicle traffic that may be happening as we quote unquote reopen. You mentioned some policy measures we might be considering more longer term that might manage demand for vehicles. Perhaps this is going to be a big issue, not just the supply of public transport and building bicycle lanes, but how we manage demand for private vehicles. Sao Paulo has a program, it started 25 years ago, that create no circulate day. It uh, depends on your plate, we are allowed or not allowed to circulate with your private car uh, one day per week. It's to reduce traffic congestion. I think during the transition period, it's hard to take this decision because we will have the virus and the risk of contamination. But after we will be protected from the virus by vaccine or because a huge number of people got the, the virus, we will have a normal life. I, I believe that. And in this period, it's a great period to redesign, as I mentioned, to reshape our public transportation environment. One of the good decisions is to stimulate to use public transportation. You can do it using the price of the fare, you can use improving quality of public transportation, you can use improving infrastructure, offering more reliability, more better 
time uh, travel, but you should use some measures to restrict the use of private car and to collect money from the private car. If you use to go, if you elect to go to work by car and you spend $1 to do it, the society will pay $9, around $9 to subsidize your private car choice. So it's completely fair that creates some measures to collect money from the private car use that creates a lot of negative externalities to subsidize public transportation that creates a lot of positive externalities. Uh, it's kind of measure, I think it's a great time to start this discussion. The politicians and the lawmakers avoid to do it in the normal time, but in face of this crisis and this gap to sustain public transportation, I think it's a great time to start this discussion to put it on the table. We're getting some questions on uh, inclusiveness and equality. We are seeing this virus reveal the, the vast inequities in some of our societies. Maybe I'll pose it my question about what are the opportunities to relieve some of the issues of inequality that are happening right now and provide public transport, walking and biking, transportation, access to opportunities more equally. Just to bring something in the conversation that perhaps didn't come up yet, but I think this, this question you brought up gives us perhaps the opportunity of putting it in the equation of things. Informal transport services in many cities in the global south, isn't it, which go there or exist in order to fill the gap of the lack of public transit. These are 100% a private sector run. They are experiencing complete loss. They're going to probably disappear, a good part of them. Not to mention that, of course, in a, in a matatu, in a boda boda, uh, how do you keep social distancing? But the impact that has got in actually people being able to access jobs uh, in, many, in many cities in the global south, people walk, walk on the road for miles and miles during hours and hours, or they use this informal transit. But what's going to be that interface or that progressive discussion we need to have about the fact that informal transport services, in many occasions, they are just filling a gap of something that should exist. And that something is called public transit. This has elevated these issues into uh, higher up into the minds of more people. Most people now are seeing uh, problems that have always existed, but COVID-19 has shined a spotlight on it in a way that makes it harder for people to ignore. I have known for years that we design our roadways to be safer in wealthier neighborhoods, but as I've been riding my bike to get some exercise and going further and further afield, it is so stark and clear to me when I get into poor neighborhoods how dangerous they are, how the roadways are built to speed people through there as if no one would ever want to stop there. And as a bicyclist on that roadway, I really feel the attitude of the public officials that create that sort of environment. And so we can capitalize on that. Uh, those of us who are in analysis and research can continue to keep the conversation alive by looking at the areas that are redesigning roadways, even temporarily, to see what the impact is. Not just on uh, safety in these areas now, access to jobs, economic recovery, and who will have access to jobs, but also there's a lot of evidence that there's going to be a second wave of health problems, not just from COVID, but from mental health problems coming out of the stress of these days. How do the areas that have made it possible for people to move around outside safely fare this as opposed to those that are really crowded into their homes. I want to mention that this big challenge to uh, recover public transportation, it will ask for cities to be completely focused to prioritize public transportation. 
we need to offer after this crisis more reliability, more better time travel, and better integration, especially integration with uh, active models, bicycling and walking, to incentivate this kind of solution because it's safe, it's green, and it's cheaper and democratic. And don't forget about governance. During this crisis, we observed in different parts of the world lack of coordination, lack of governance, different authorities taking different decisions, different levels of operation, different plans to operate public transportation during this crisis, creating a lot of mess for users. So let's learn with this crisis that you need to have better governance in public transportation, especially in metropolitan zones, to create metropolitan authorities that can manage with a whole vision to offer better quality, to reduce costs and to improve efficiency in public transportation. And that was Sergio Avieda ending this shortened recording from our webinar about building back better in public transport following the COVID-19 crisis. You can find the full audiovisual recording from this, including slides on the events page at WRI.org or on our dedicated COVID-19 pages. You'll also find other Build Back Better webinars that we've already held and one still to come. You can, of course, catch them all on the WRI podcast, available wherever you download yours. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.